This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. Much of these lands have been part of various treaties over the centuries, and some remain unceded. Since the very beginning, Indigenous peoples have inhabited and held responsibilities for these lands that remain home to diverse First Nations. We commit ourselves to the work of reconciliation among settlers and Indigenous peoples. Through this land acknowledgement, our intent is to honour and show gratitude to the original and ongoing stewards of the land as a sign of respect and willingness to learn and heal. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. We also acknowledge that not all settlers were brought here by choice. Together, may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. Today we have such a treat. For years, I have had such a big fangirl crush on Tyson Williams, and I am so excited that she has joined us in the first episode of our third season in The Hub. Tysley currently serves as the Chief Development Officer of the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She is a certified fundraising executive and in her more than 20-year career, she has inspired individuals and institutions to invest more than $100 million in charitable causes. Tysley leads the Association of Fundraising Professionals Global Inclusion, Diversity, Equity and Access Committee. She chairs the governing boards of Monument Academy Public Charter School, the Nonprofit Alliance Foundation, and Rising Media Stars. And she also teaches fundraising and leadership at the Pennsylvania State University. A cum laude graduate of Wake Forest University, Tysley holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in communication with distinguished departmental honors and a minor in journalism. She also earned an executive master's in leadership from the McDonoghue School of Business at Georgetown University. And Tysley is proud to be a joyful divorcee. She is absolutely one of the most gracious, smart, and kind leaders I have ever met in the charitable sector. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that you will too. We talked about leading with curiosity, not making assumptions about people, having the right mindset, and the importance of showing up rested, healed, and with a willingness to be open to other people's perspectives. Um, We go deep into the state of our society and how our own perspectives and well-being have an enormous impact, positive and sometimes negative, on the culture within our organizations. Please join me in welcoming Tysley to the Hub. Tysley, I am so, so happy to welcome you into conversation today. Thank you for making this a priority. Kimberly, thank you for the invitation. I was delighted to say yes. Um, You always 
inspire me and so many around the world. So I am looking forward to an inspirational exchange and conversation. So thank you. Well, I just can't believe that you would say that about me because when they came to me and said, would you host I wish I thought of that with Tysley Williams. I was like, oh my God, of course I will. That was so much fun. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. And, you know, speaking of inspiration, there was certainly a lot of that. And I walked away learning something, which yeah. I think is always a plus when we commit our time and energy to activities. Uh, it's nice to walk away feeling a little bit smarter and also feeling a little bit more assured about stepping into the world and carrying out our commitments. Mm -hmm. And that is the beauty and joy when uh, folks in the sector do come together and share. And also when you approach it from a place of curiosity, um, yes, it's always an opportunity to learn something, right? Yes, absolutely. And you learn, know, sorry, go ahead, Tysley. What? No, I was just going to say, I love the point that you made about the curious mind. That's mm -hmm. uh, something that I often speak to, but yes, it's so important that we bring that. All right. Well, let's get it. I want to talk more about that then. Um, but before we do, <laughs> uh, how are you identifying today? I mean, I just read your bio out and that's a lot, but what's going on? What are you bringing today? You know, today... Like most days, I identified a day as being a lifelong learner. Uh, it's interesting, the older I get, the more obsessed I become with information and enlightenment and having exposure to different perspectives and being in places and spaces that challenge me and sharpen my thinking and understanding and empathy. So you know, front and center, it's going to be a lifelong learner. Mm. And I also, um, over the last couple of days, I've been identifying as a professional in need of refreshing, like someone who just came from vacay, who's starting to think about the next vacay. So I am identifying as being an over worked, oversaturated, overcommitted hmm. executive. I'm sure there are other people who can probably relate. So, you know, those are probably the two most prominent identities that are kind of at the front and center, which are really interesting because they're both uh, stemming from, you know, how I'm feeling. And one is an aspirational state. Mm -hmm. And I think the other is more reflective of uh, the current state. It's so interesting. That's so interesting because, well, it might seem like those two things contradict each other. They don't, they don't. Yeah. There's, yeah. It, and I can really identify with that tightly because it seems like the older I get, the less I actually know. Yes. Right. But yes. that's a beautiful thing because that just means you're ready to level up. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly right. And I think it means we've been intentional about continuing to expose ourselves to what is an ever 
increasing, ever-changing world. Mm -hmm. The -hmm. longer we live, the more there is to know and to understand, because not only do we have history, like increasing just because of the years and days that actually pass by, and there's a lot to learn from a historical perspective, but the inventions and innovations and the technology that enables us to learn at the speed of which is just astronomical, it creates this avenue for us to have more exposure. And with that exposure, I think comes more desire to just ensure that that insatiable, curious mind you know, that we're, we're feeding that. Yes. And then you speak of being a stretched thin executive, like you just yes. from vacation and you're supposed to be feeling a little more refreshed than you are. And I think that speaks to um, the, the, the reality that the world is a completely different and turbulent place. We are living in very turbulent times. Yes. So that's where that curiosity is going to serve you because that nimbleness and that flexibility is going to allow you to sort of hang out in this uncertain place and make changes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So and I think for those of us who work in this sector, we are all problem solvers. You know, as you talk about the identity Mm-hmm. It's interesting that in order to be a problem solver, you have to have an element of intrigue and a desire to explore. And then you pair that with the ability to drive action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the driving the action, the sweat of the brow, the hard work, the long days, the endless hours can create stress and strain for the problem solver. Yeah. Can take it. Because even when we're feeding our mind, we're feeding our intellect, we have to be equally as committed to feeding our rest. And it seems like, hmm, how do you feed rest? You know, rest needs sustenance, just like any other activity. And so sometimes to feed rest, it's like, to your point about this contrary thinking, I have to remind myself that, you know, sitting still and distancing myself from social media and going to bed at appropriate hours and drinking adequate water, like all of those commitments Mm -hmm. are equally as important to my ability to solve problems, because without strength, emotional strength, physical strength, you're unable to bring your best self and to do your best work. Well, it's so true. If we, you know, the perspective for many people is that self-care is selfish. Yes. But your point is, if we take time to rest, if we take time to nourish and, and feed our bodies, that's that can be seen through the lens of being of service to our families and to our jobs and put on your own oxygen mask first right that's right 
That's exactly right. So, okay. So I want to get all in, and you touched on influence and I want to talk about power um, because there's just so many, so many things, but for our listeners who may not know who you are, which I can't believe, but, um, oh, you know what I have to tell you, you know what I did for this conversation today, because I was so excited. I put on shoes. (laughs) I put on shoes. I did. I'm wearing shoes. I love it. I wear shoes. I love it. I'm speaking with Tysley. I need to just, you know, be dressed properly for her. Thank you. Well, I thank you for the affirmation. Thank you for um, the kind words. I've been fortunate over the last soon to be three decades to just forge and form cherished relationships with so many not-for-profit leaders and executives. And I cherish and relish um, so many and all of the people in our community. Um, So thank you for echoing those sentiments. Um, I am am honored by that. So thank you, Kimberly. Let's rewind 30 years, Tysley, um, and just tell us just a little bit about what motivated you, what inspired you, how did you end up working in this sector? Yeah. So my origin story began, you know, the day I entered the world on March 9th in 1975 in what was still a segregated area of the Deep South. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama to two parents who had endured all of the ugliness tied and attached to growing up in Southern states. My father uh, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, my mother in a rural community called Ellery, South Carolina. Um, They met in college and it was interesting because I was born to two people who had commonality because they were both African-Americans, but they came from two very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Hmm. My dad was the first generation in his family to go to college, earning an athletic scholarship to South Carolina State University. And my mother was actually the third generation within her family to go to college. And so I came from this lineage of two lovely, caring, compassionate people who wanted to do, I think, what most parents want to do, which is to shield your children from the ugliness of the world while also being transparent and honest about what awaits as it pertains to their identity. And so at the time of birth, there were two identity markers that were affixed to my birth certificate that have since played an extremely important role in my life. One was my gender. I was a girl. Two, I was a black girl. And so once you take a black girl in the South, in the middle of the 70s, I was introduced to things both through a structured perspective from my parents and just through my lived experiences observing things. I saw the best and worst of the South. So the best of the South was tied to people who were 
cordial, who mm-hmm. were considerate, who were kind to strangers, to family members, people who had affirming things to say. And I was also exposed to people who were prejudiced and biased and people who passed judgment and people who isolated themselves from people who were not like them. Hmm. And it was through the lens of trying to make sense of a community that espoused one set of values in one way and then denounced them in other ways where I stepped into an interest in really learning more about people. Hmm. And this relational curiosity led me to relational commitments. And that was serving in my community. That was being active in student government. That was graduating from college and starting community-based dance studios going back to my hometown to help a Fortune 500 company establish an independent 501c3 and moving to Washington, D.C. to be the first director of development for a prison project. And I would say that the decisions that I've made along the way were made as a result of me having an intrigue and an interest in a specific issue area. And the intrigue and the interest largely stemmed from causes that were closely connected to my community. Mm -hmm. And so I've done a lot in the health and human services space. And after probably about 20 years of being in direct services, I've transitioned uh, to where I am now in the nation's capital here in the United States, leading fundraising for a bipartisan think tank that focuses on bringing the best ideas from Republicans and Democrats and driving forward federal legislation um, for all Americans. Such an interesting place to be because we live in such a polarized country right now. Yes. Your original inspiration of serve to serve your community and the curiosity that you bring to the table everywhere that you go um, probably is serving you extremely well in that role. I can imagine. It is. And what's interesting is I remember as a young person, as a child, seeing things that were incongruent, Mm -hmm. seeing situations where maybe the audio and the video didn't quite match. You know, someone identified with a certain religious values or principles, and they wore those on their sleeve and watched the way they treated people. And you're like, hmm, Mm. sure if that aligns with your own values. Mm -hmm. So I realized early on that people were peculiar (laughs) and that we all are just, (laughs) we're all imperfect works in progress. You know what? I I couldn't agree with you more about that. 
I call us all a hot mess, but maybe the title of this podcast has to be People Are Peculiar. Yeah, People Are Peculiar, you know? And from that, I've always forced myself, before I pass judgment, I forced myself to get to know people, Mm -hmm. not to interpret who someone is as a result of whether or not they have a certain emblem on their car, not to make assumptions about if someone has a certain emblem on their car, then they're going to react a certain way. Right. You know, just really forcing myself to challenge my thinking around bias and stereotypes and my level of comfort. Mm-hmm. because we live, you know, it, it's human nature to fall in this in-group, out-group mindset. Mm-hmm. It's the way in which we cognitively journey through the complexity of life as we deal with other human beings. Mm-hmm. We say, oh, as a result of their education, their religion, their occupation, you know, here's the in-group, here's the out-group. And we create this division because we can't really process through that there's one group of humanity. You know, we look at the diversity and instead of seeking to find the commonality, we are conditioned to find the variance and to seek comfort from those who are similar. Yeah. And we go to places and spaces where there's the greatest shared common denominators because we perceive that to be easier and consequently better for us. I can't, I mean, that's just so resonant for me right now. You're, you're stretching me a little bit. I, I used to hang a Canadian flag on my house because I was very mm-hmm. proud to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how up to date you are on what's happening up here, but the alt-right are, you know, we had this big trucking protest and our Canadian mm-hmm. flag was used as a symbol for the alt-right in Canada. And mm-hmm. I don't want to hang my Canadian flag up anymore because I don't want people to assume that that's how I think or feel. That's right. That's right. right. And it makes me sad. That's right. But um, I'm not sure what to do with that because I'm not sure that I am willing to be curious. That's right. (laughs) Hanging out in that circle. So we do. I don't know where the bridge. I honestly, I confess to not knowing where the bridge is there, but I don't put my Canadian flag out anymore. Yes. It's interesting. I had um, a friend visit my home here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I live about 14 miles south of the District of Columbia. And mm-hmm. a friend comes over and she says, you have an American flag outside? Like only Republicans have flags outside of their homes. Uh, same thing. So it, it's this perception <laughs> right. that, you know, a flag waving home 
is a home where a Republican lives. Mm-hmm. You know, when I moved to the District of Columbia, I was introduced to nomenclature and I was told Democrats speak to the nation's capital as the district or the District of Columbia. Republicans call it Washington. Hmm. When you fly into the airport, Republicans call it Reagan. Democrats call it DCA. And so it's just interesting, these these social norms Mm -hmm. that are absolutely prevalent and social norms that become more and more pronounced because the fear of being mislabeled, misunderstood, that's a high state decision. Mm -hmm. And so I think Kimberly, so many of us would fall absolutely where you've fallen with this particular decision because there are some moral non-negotiables. You know, when I speak about this curiosity, it doesn't mean to the end of co-signing and agreeing with you. The curiosity exists so that I can better understand, not necessarily so that I can concede my viewpoint and to say you are correct. It, it, It is to listen, to learn, to maybe check some things, to maybe rebalance my perspective, but it isn't to convert me to believe what you believe. The curiosity exists to educate me about what you believe. And in some instances, through that education, there may be an adaptation or an adjustment to my originally held view. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, I just have a better understanding of my originally held view. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, that there might be an adjustment to my originally held view. That means that you are open to being stretched and you're open to questioning your own beliefs and your values. And I, I mean, we're, we're looking at this from a national political landscape, but let's just take this idea of collaboration and consensus and curiosity into a dysfunctional charitable sector. <laughs> and yes. I do believe that a lot of our organizations and our internal cultures have some work to do <laughs> around in this space. So I think that curiosity and willingness to stretch your own assumptions can serve folks who work in the charitable sector extremely well. Absolutely. You know, I think for the most part, charitable missions do not necessarily exist to be exclusive. They exist to be inclusive of a specific audience or a community. And more often than not, within said focus, you're going to find diversity of thought, 
diversity of lived experiences, diversity of problem solving, diversity of religion, diversity of socioeconomic class. There are going to be so many varied identity markers that do not share the same sentiments, the same core elements. And within that, we have a responsibility. We really want to carry out our mission, not only the letter of the mission, but the spirit of the mission. We have to do so in a way that fosters collaboration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that understands the importance of forging and forming unity within the collection of people advancing mission, vision, and values. Forging and forming unity. Yes. So we're speaking about, you know, if we could wave a magic wand and everyone walked into an organization or potential conflict uh, discussion and they were assuming good intent, (laughs) they were assuming everybody around the table had the best of intentions based on the knowledge that they have at the time and that everybody was just as good as, but no better than. Yes. the conversation would be very different. Yes. But often, often there's a power dynamic at play. So how do we work towards a balance of power when you're not the person in charge? Yes. You know, I want to, I want to revert back to where we started. Okay. So much of this is about having the right mindset. And when you aren't rested, Mm. and when you haven't cared for yourself, and when you haven't addressed past hurts and harms, when you haven't healed, you show up in places and spaces emoting. Mm -hmm. You show up tired, you show up aggravated, you show up resentful, you show up in ways that are inflexible, that are, it's hard to permeate when you're dealing with an individual person who is not necessarily in their strongest and best state. And so that is like 98.9% of all of us right now. I think it's important for us to have situational awareness that we have lived through some of the most traumatic, trying, emotionally charged, frustrating, depressing. We've endured a lot. Mm -hmm. And so before we even step into how do we confront the power dynamics I think we have to first recognize that there might be some internal power dynamics at play within our own competing identities, Mm -hmm. 
right? And so we've got to get our minds right. We've got to get ourselves to a good place before we can even step into any type of healthy engagement with another human being. Yeah. And I think what often happens when I look at misplaced power, more often than not, it is someone or an institution that has become so infatuated with the feelings of importance, the feelings of nobility, the feelings of being feared, right? That they're willing to go to any extent, to any, take any action to feel what for them is something favorable, even when in order for them to feel favorable, they have to act in ways that are unfavorable to and for other people. And most people, to your point about is self-care selfish, most people are making choices and decisions based upon what's serving their interest. They recognize that people have other interests. They recognize that in some instances they're shared interest, but most people are trying to protect and preserve what matters most to them. And the unfortunate thing is for most leaders, what matters most are the measures of success that they're being judged on in exchange for their compensation. And rarely do those measures include the health, safety, and well being of others. Hmm. You know, profitability usually doesn't take into account those things. Yeah, let's let that sit for a minute. I mean, really, let's let that sit that leaders are not being measured on the health and well being of their staff, rather, financial metrics. Yes. And you've got an interesting perspective as a someone who is maybe in a situation where they don't like their boss or they're feeling threatened, but to take a compassionate lens on that relationship and ask themselves, how might my boss be feeling threatened right now? How what what pressure are they living in? How might I make their job easier? And taking that focus off of themselves um, may help them be more influential in advancing the kind of change they want to have. That's right. And you've done an excellent job centering shared interest. Mm. It is in the best interest of the leader and the employee who is being led by that leader for that leader to be in a healthy state. Because if that leader is operating void of stress, if that leader is able to demonstrate meeting and exceeding those metrics, then I would think, 
that there would be some correlation between the environment Mm -hmm. that the leader felt as well as those within the team Mm -hmm. that I would think that the environment itself would start to feel and be better. Right. Because then there's alignment. Right? Yes. There, there yes. is tension internally. There's a, an alignment externally. That's right. Which is and a you've eliminated, yes, you've eliminated the in-group and out-group. Yeah. You see, it's so easy to put the boss in the out-group category. Sure. And to put you and your peers in the in-group. And to think of it as an adversarial relationship, mm-hmm. when in actuality, you both step into the same culture every day. Mm-hmm. And you've got the ability to leverage a little bit that might be working. If you're willing to like problem solve in an unconventional way. Yeah. Yeah. I've been an executive director twice and director of development twice. And I have to say the executive director role is so lonely. It can be so lonely. Yes. Because of that. Yes. It's interesting. I started my career as an executive director and ended up shifting to advancement and development because it was the responsibility of being an ED that I enjoyed the most. It was the fundraising. Oh, interesting. And so I said, you know, I'm going over to that side of the house. <laughs> but um, it is it is very lonely leading organizations. It can be. And we try to stay away from tactics on this podcast, as I mentioned earlier. But I just wonder if it might be useful. You know, we're speaking kind of high level and with an idealist kind of perspective. But What do you think teams might be able to do to advance that kind of compassion and alignment uh, internally? I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I think the most important tactic is defining and holding one another accountable to shared values. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Because when you step into any type of engagement, commitment. You need rules. You need shared understanding on how to play. When are you going to get called out? When is it appropriate for it to be flag on the field? Mm -hmm. And without knowing what the institutional values are, it's hard to discern, well, Kimberly grew up in Canada, Tysley grew up in America. They may have varying viewpoints on what's right, what's wrong, or appropriate or inappropriate. But if they're together on a team and if they can articulate and express good behavior, bad behavior, mm-hmm. behavior that will be tolerated, behavior that we will not tolerate, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, when you're able to help people better understand what the expectations are, not around policies and procedures, but around practices. Yeah. Then I think you set yourself up to create a high performing culture because you're introducing beliefs that are going to influence behavior. 
So you've got to start with those values. Yeah. And, and if as an organization, you say that you value, let's say, well, I'm just going to call on one of my big values is family first. Let's say an organization Mm going to hold everybody accountable to the value that family first, everything else second. And I know this is a radical thought, (laughs) but, but then how might that value be operationalized in a meeting? How might you hold each other accountable in a meeting? So for example, if a boss comes in and you've got a meeting and her school called and her child is in the principal's office and she's going to sit down and carry, I'm just making this up. She's going to carry on the meeting, but she's just sort of spewed out. Oh yeah, this happened. I got a call from the school. I would expect that if that organization is going to hold the value of family first, um, they would stop the meeting and say, actually, Sally, you know what? In this organization, we value family first. So we're going to carry on with this while you go do that. That's right. Imagine what a wonderful workplace that would be. Yes, absolutely. And I think what's also really wonderful in that type of culture is imagine if Sally really felt comfortable asserting her own desire to be there for her family. Right. That she knew that it was a safe space to take the call and then say the identity of being a mom Mm -hmm. has now knocked on the door. Mm -hmm. I've spent the last three hours here as an executive. I now have to recognize that I have other competing commitments and demands. And in this organization, this is a value that we prioritize. So I know it's going to be okay for me to excuse myself. Mm-hmm. for me to uphold these responsibilities. And once my child, my family, my mother, my aunt, you know, whatever the caregiving responsibility is. And for women, it comes all upside, downside, sideways, and byways. Yeah. Whatever, whatever caregiving responsibility there is, mm-hmm. there is not grace because grace is something that's given and granted. Mm-hmm right? Mm -hmm. When there is not necessarily an expectation or need. Here, you've created a value. So what you're saying to me is I have a right. I have a right to step into my responsibility based upon this value set to excuse myself. Yeah. And so few organizations do that. You know, some organizations define the values and the values sit on a website. Yeah. They rest on a wall. They aren't actualized. Yeah. And we, as the people, we are the ones who have to activate and hold ourselves and each other accountable. So just like you said, if we're witnessing Sally, you know, you need to go pick up the kids. Like we've got to be an accountability partner for Sally to help her live out our values. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to give a nod to, yeah, you know, we are an organization, a, a sector dominated by women. And there are also men who work in our organization and men have been taught since the day they were born 
Yes. They need to put up and shut up and just deliver. That's right. um, imagine the gift it would be to help our male counterparts also be able to put their families first in situations like that. As an example of operationalizing values. Yes. As an example of creating accountability. And I love what you've said about it all does really start with your organizational values, which could be different. You know, there could be values that the board dictates, um, but there could also be an, a, a social contract with the staff on how we're going to deliver the results we need to deliver, how we're going to work as a team and how we're going to hold each other accountable. I love that. You know why I love that? Because I think that if more organizations operated in that way, if people operated in that way um, with this curiosity and compassion and, and accountability and support, we would have a more joyful workplace. We would have a more joyful workplace. And who isn't down with more joy? Like, no matter your identity, yeah. everybody can get down with bringing in more joy. Yes. Tell me about that. You know, it's interesting if you were to look at my bio as it appears on my homepage at the Bipartisan Policy Center, you will see that I identify as a joyful divorcee. Yes. When I got divorced 11 years ago and I would share with people that I was divorced, so many individuals, oh, I'm so sorry. That saddens me. I regret to hear that. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Going back to the fact that people are peculiar. <laughs> Why are you making the assumption that the fact that a marriage has ended, that that is not necessarily a positive occurrence? In some instances, if you're wedded with someone and you've determined that you're not going to live a joyful life, then there is a pathway to become a joyful divorcee. <laughs> and the, the excitement should be around wherever the joy rests. Right. If the joy rests in a joyful marriage, excellent. If the joy rests with the joyful divorcee, equally excellent. And so I had to qualify the type of divorcee I was because so many people concluded that I was devastated, darkened, et cetera. I love that. I, I, you're so right. I'm also divorced and I have husband 2.0. I didn't love it. look at my divorce through that lens, unfortunately, but I do like that perspective. Um, and also, you know, the other thing that you do when you put that into your bio is you model that we are all humans, that we're humans first and humans are a hot mess, right? But we, we do live, especially now at a time where we need to be more human forward together. That's right. That's right. Well, you are one of my favorite humans. So thank you for the opportunity to listen, to learn, and to laugh with you. These have been some fabulous minutes shared. So thank you, thank you once again for the invitation.
I'm so grateful that you came by. Thank you, Tysley. Thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you? Where's the best place to connect? So the best place to connect, um, you can find me on social channels and it's at Tysley. So that's T-Y-C-E-L-Y. I am probably the most active on LinkedIn, but um, in about two to three weeks, I'm going to become a little bit more active on Instagram and my fundraising team, speaking of diversity, I've got a lot of young people on my team and they are just insistent <laughs> that uh, I need to find my way to TikTok. Oh, so uh, it, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes. But for <laughs> now, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram and possibly soon TikTok. on TikTok. Before I let you go, the one last question I like to ask folks this season is, is there anything left unsaid? Hmm. I think I would encourage people to continue thinking of ways in which they can love on themselves, give themselves grace, and be your own advocate for what is needed most in every single relationship that you forge and form. Thank you so much, Tysley. Absolutely. Thank you. Tysley, I have to say thank you one more time for helping us to launch season three here at The Hub. And thank you listeners for making this podcast part of your day. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many great conversations coming up this season. I can't wait to share them with you. I'm Kimberly McKenzie, and I will see you next time in the hub. Bye.